If we could, please open up your Bibles in this morning to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I think you can raise your hand. Maybe the ushers have some extra ones they can hand out. John chapter 1. In the first, basically, five verses of John chapter 1, the Apostle John is introducing us to a person called the Word. By now, you probably know that's Jesus. But John describes the Word as existing before creation uh, with God, and yet John says in the first couple of verses there that he was with God, but he was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And John says of the Word in verse 4 of John chapter 1, that in him, in the Word, was life. And so the Word, according to John the Apostle, is the uncreated, the eternal in whom is life, in other words, all life has its origin in him. The Word is the creator of the universe. And in verses 4 and 5, John expands upon the analogy of the Word uh, being the eternal God by saying that the Word is the source of life, and yet that life he, he analogizes as being like light in darkness. The Word is like light in darkness, and his life, the light that exudes from Christ, is like light and darkness. And that's, that's basically the analogy that's all throughout the Bible. And that picture of light is life, and the picture of darkness is spiritual death. And so the light, the eternal God, shines in the darkness, John says. And John the Apostle is writing in all these terms. He's writing in the term the Word. He's writing in the term uh, the life and the light. All these to bring us to, to verse 14, which is basically the central theme of John chapter 1 which says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John the Apostle declares to us the Word, the eternal God who existed before any of this was here. The eternal God, who is the creator, who himself is the source of life. He's the source of your bios. He's the source of your physical life. And he's also the source of all spiritual life. That that eternal God came and became part of his creation. Infused himself, closed himself, and closed himself with flesh. And John says the word became flesh. And that word... Uh, in Latin is what we call the, the incarnation. Incarnation. Carno means like carnivore, meat eater, right? Flesh. But in means in flesh. God became a man. And John says that God, the word, dwelt among us. And I'm, I'm picking apart these words because they're so rich and they're so full. He dwelt among us. That word dwelt, it means tabernacle. It means tent. God pitched his tent among men. That's kind of what it's saying. Now, if, how many of you have read through the Old Testament and you saw the picture of the tabernacle and the temple and all these things? This is kind of what, uh, what he's alluding to as he's speaking there. He says, in the Old Testament, basically, the tabernacle was a, was a giant tent in the wilderness that God prescribes in Exodus 40. 34 through 35, and you can read about what it looks like and what it was to be like. But basically, the outside was not very pretty. It was made of all these dead animal skins that were dyed. 
And so the outside of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the Hebrews, remember, they were delivered out of the land of Egypt, and then God begins to prescribe. He's given the law, and he describes the tabernacle, what they're to build, and it's this place where God would dwell among men, specifically among his, his, his people. So they created this tabernacle, and on the outside, it, was not, it wasn't all that great to behold, but inside were riches and all the instruments of worship and gold. And at the very heart of that place was something called the holy place or the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant where God's, and then above the Ark of the Covenant was something called the mercy seat. And God would dwell in that place. And that place was separated from everywhere else by a veil. Man couldn't just bust into the holy of holies and say hi to God and give him a high five. He was totally separated from mankind. And the reason is obviously because of his holiness. We'll get to that. But So there was a tabernacle, but not only was there the tabernacle, remember that tabernacle later became permanent in the temple in Jerusalem. You all remember that, right? And so it wasn't that anybody could just walk down the middle aisle, cruise past everything, and cruise right into the, the Holy of Holies. They would be executed, right? And so that's described in 1 Kings, basically the temple, that more permanent place. So, so, but at no time when God was dwelling in the tabernacle or in the temple was God approachable because of his glory. Because of his glory. Isn't that an odd thing that his glory would keep us from him? And this is something to be brought out a little bit here. And because his glory was so glorious, and I have to describe what that means in a second, but there were always structures in place. There were always veils in place. There were always things in between man and his glory to shield us from his glory, because if we saw his glory, we would die. That is how unapproachable and holy God is, and that is how dark we are. God's glory is basically the totality of who he is, manifested in inapproachable light. That's how it's, it's always shown in the Old Testament, the New Testament. God appears, there's just this light, this brilliant light. They try to describe it, but it's always shrouded in something, a cloud or a temple or, or some kind of tabernacle to protect us. So in his mercy, God throughout the Old Testament, he he shielded his people from his glory, yet he wanted to be with them. God's glory was veiled. In the Old Testament, when God was imparting the law to Moses, you remember he went up to Mount Sinai, Charleston Nesson went up there, and all the, you know, the whole story. Moses is in Exodus in 33:18. He says to God, after, after he'd already gone up, got the commandments, came down, they had blown it, they were worshiping idols, he broke the Ten Commandments, had to go back up, was hanging out with God for 40 days, and basically at the end of that time he just says, in, ver, in, 30, in Exodus 33, 18, it says, please show me your glory. This is Moses' greatest desire. I want to see you as you truly are. Show me your glory. And God says in verse 19 of Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness. That's how he describes himself. All my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord the eternal one. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. 
And here God tells Moses, if you see me, you're going to die. So he tells Moses, basically, Moses, here's what we'll do. Because I've shown you favor, because I'll sh I've shown mercy to whom I want to show mercy. I know you. You know me. I know you by name. I know you personally, Moses. You're my servant. This is, this is, this is what I want. He's actually a friend of God. But what I want you to do is I want you to stand behind this rock that's going to cover you from my glory. And what's going to happen is as I pass by, I'm going to put my hand up, so to speak, and it's going to keep you from seeing my face, lest you die. And then I'm going to take down my hand and I will pass by me. And what you're going to see is you're going to see the afterglow of my glory. You guys ever done that on 4th of July? You take the sparkler and you go like that and you're writing your name. It's not really, you're looking at the trail. And that's exactly, you can't look at the essence, you're looking at the trail. And that's what he did. He showed Moses his glory, passed by. What happened is Moses' face was so affected by the glory of God. He was so affected by being in the presence of God that he radiated. He was glowing. And it says when he came back down the mountain, he scared the people. Because the, the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes and all these types of things were going on that were scaring the people to where they did not want to approach God. And that's true because God is holy and sinful men cannot approach God. And they have to have a representative, someone to go in between, so to speak, in the Old Covenant. And so Moses came down and his face was glowing. Pretty wild stuff. And he had to cover it up. Because people were afraid. Paul talks about us having unveiled faces and our glory isn't decreasing but increasing. It's the opposite now in Christ, but we won't get into that right now. So Moses had to wear a veil, even him as a representative. And by the way, it's interesting when, when some of you are hanging out so richly, so deeply in the presence of the Lord, it, sh it, sh it shines in your countenance. Not to get charismatic, but you can see people who've been in, who know him and have been around him and who just have his love in, in their hearts. Amen? And so, in 1 Kings 8, uh, 8, 8 and, and basically 2 Chronicles chapter 5, they both also tell of God's glory entering the temple. If you remember that, when Solomon dedicates the temple, the house, the house of the Lord was being dedicated. It says, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. God's presence, when it enters into mankind, there, there is a, there's, a, there's an awe that just stops everybody in their tracks. When he manifested his presence, and he does this over and over. You guys remember Isaiah in chapter 6? He has a vision of the Lord. He's before the Lord. He sees him in his holiness. What happens? He says, basically, I'm undone. He sees the holiness of the Lord in his temple as he's, he's caught up in a vision, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's just like, I'm dead. And he fell as dead. And it said that the angels had to basically revive him and cleanse him and pick him up. And I'm telling you, this is what happens when a person encounters Jesus Christ. We, we realize his holiness and our unholiness. And like Peter, we say, Depart from me, for I am wretched. But what does Jesus do? He brings his holiness and touches our darkness. And we're illuminated and we receive his life. We're not, he isn't tainted by us. <laughs> the darkness does not overcome him. 
What a beautiful Savior. We're getting there, but... So God's glory was revealed to mankind, but always shrouded in a building lest we die. And so God's glory is the sum of all his attributes manifested in pure light that he is eternal. Listen to his attributes. All that he is manifests his glory. And I'll, I'll just name some, that he's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's the creator in whom is life. That he is gracious. He is merciful. He's a sovereign judge. That he is holy. That he executes judgment in his wrath. And yet he forgives. He is forgiving. And, and he saves. And he delivers. And he is the source of all wisdom. And he is the source of all truth. And he is the source of all life. And all of the attributes that are his are manifested in glory, in his glory, in this divine, inapproachable light. That's how we kind of translate it. He is glorious. That is our God. And here, John the Apostle says that the Word, the eternal God, who is all that, was made flesh. And he dwelt among us. And John the Apostle says, and we have seen his glory. Whoa. John says, we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we saw that glory manifested in the Word made flesh. How did that happen? When did that happen? Flip left in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Click over to Luke chapter 9, verse 28-36. It's also in Matthew 17 and also in Mark 9, I think. But Luke chapter 9, verses 28-36, it says this. Now about eight days after these things, after these sayings, he, that is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James. So Peter, James, and John, and they went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was, was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. These are the three sleepers. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Notice, and the two men. Who's becoming more into view? Who's becoming less into view? The two men. Oh yeah, just the giants of the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses. Oh yeah, and those guys, but they saw his glory. And the two men stood with him. Matthew's account of this says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. That's Matthew 17 too. Mark's account says there, was, there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them or wash them. And so these guys are, are grasping for pictures in our realm, in our world, to describe an eternal glory. It falls short. They're trying to grab, it's like somebody, one of them's going, it's like lightning. It's like the brightest white. Someone's like, I remember my mom used to wash my clothes and they were so white, it's whiter than that. You know, they're just, they can't, their vocabulary falls short. That's how radiant the glory was. John just says they saw his glory, it was dazzling white. Verse 33, continuing 
um, in, in, in Matthew's account. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said, as usual. Verse 34, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. In other words, the Christ, Messiah, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. John said, we have seen his glory. We saw him transfigured before us. And notice he says, glory as the one of the only son, uh, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God was fully manifested in the son, fully manifested in Jesus. I'm telling you, people downplay Jesus all the time. I run into people who teach that, that Jesus isn't God. Are you kidding me? Over and over and over, all through the scriptures, it says that Jesus is God. And it takes several different ways to explain it. In him is the fullness of God. You can't have the fullness of God in, in, in Jesus if he is not God. That's amazing. But the glory was fully manifested in the Son. Jesus says to, and this is interesting, Jesus says, well, Philip, one of the disciples, he says to him, who was there in the upper room at the end, he says, hey, show, show us Show us the Father. And what does Jesus say? Have I been with you so long that you, have not, you don't recognize me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Basically, the Father and I are one. God in the flesh. He is the perfect representation of the Father. The glory of God was fully manifested in the Son. And yet, Jesus, Jesus um, fully manifested God's glory. His attributes but here's the thing about jesus is that even then god's glory was veiled in human flesh but jesus didn't reveal his full glory to everyone it was still shrouded and listen if jesus had come in his full glory we would all have known who he was but guess what would happen to all of us We're dead. He came shrouded, like that Old Testament tabernacle, ugly on the outside, beautiful on the inside. This world looks for shiny pretty. This world looks for refined on the outside. What is God looking for? The inside, in Jesus, was the fullness of God. And notice what he was full of. He was full of... I love it. Grace and truth, right? The glory of God was fully manifest in the Son. And here's the thing. What does it say about Jesus at a second coming? Is it going to be unnoticed? Is it going to be a shout? And I love what Mark 13, 26 says. Is, and when Jesus returns, there will be, this is basically the revelation of Jesus Christ. It will be the unfailing. It says that he's going to come back with what? Great power and glory. Radiant light manifesting. Wow. And John says that unique son of God, 
fully manifested God's grace and truth. Jesus, the word made flesh, possesses the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of his truth, and mankind receives the grace of God. You want to receive the unmerited favor of God? You receive it by believing the truth of Jesus Christ, by who he is. If you do not receive the Son, you do not have his grace. God has different kinds of grace, basically the Bible describes. One is just general grace. We're all breathing in and out regardless of what we've done. That's God's kind of just general grace. But I mean eternal grace upon us. It's a different kind of grace, so to speak. One that forgives us of our sins, that cleanses us, that gives us his life, that gives all, pours all that he is into us, these broken vessels. You want to have his grace. Believe in the Son. You are saved by grace through faith. Pretty fascinating. And really, John the Apostle is just blown away that he and his disciples saw God manifest in the flesh. Man, if you saw God in the flesh and you knew him and you hung around him, would that not be just an obsession with you? I would just be totally blown away. John, in all his writings, he just goes for it. I'll just read four verses of, of 1 John chapter 1. This is 1 John chapter 1. It's only, you could read it in probably all in 10 minutes, the whole the whole first, second, third John. But it says here in the first four verses of John, First uh, John chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John says, we heard, we saw, we investigated. That word look means like when, when, uh, when Peter and John basically got to the empty tomb, that word they looked, that word is to stoop down and inspect thoroughly. So it says, this way he says he saw, that's just to see, but to look means they've inspected th thoroughly, excuse me. And he goes on, concerning the word, we've touched him. John says, we heard him, we saw him, we investigated, we touched him with our own hands. At the Last Supper, remember whose head was leaned against Jesus' chest? Who was that? It doesn't say John, it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who is obsessed with the fact that he knew the eternal God in the flesh. He touched him. He handled him. He witnessed him. He saw him. And now he proclaims him. And he goes on there. This is the life was manifested. This is John, 1 John 1, verse 2. The life was manifested, and we've seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Their joy, the Apostle's joy, is that you would be in contact with the same life that he was intimately in contact with. You see, Christ came to John, not just for John's sake alone, but for our sake, that you too would know the eternal God through the witness of John. So John says, we're apostles, we're witnesses, we've touched and we've seen them. And now back to first John, John was a witness, but guess who else was a, a witness? John the Baptist. And he quickly goes back to that in verse 15. We call him John A, John B, John the Apostle, John the Baptist. So John, John the Baptist, verse 15, bore witness about him also basically and cried out, this was of he of whom I said, this is John the Baptist speaking, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Thank you very much for the riddle, John. 
Again, if you remember last week, verses 6 through 18, he just started, John the Apostle started to explain John the Baptist, who who was the forerunner of Christ. And he just basically said, listen, John came to testify that Jesus is the Christ, that we would believe and have eternal life. And so now John in verse 15 says that John bore witness about him just basically of his eternal nature. He says, listen, even though he came after me, he was before me. Here's a little thing if you read the beginning of Luke. John is Jesus' cousin. John, the Baptist, is six months older than Jesus. And John's saying, listen, he came, he came after me, but he was before me. He was eternal. If you go to John 8, 58... Same situation. They're arguing with Jesus because Jesus says that he knew Abraham before. And they're going, you're not even 50 years old. You're telling me you knew, you knew Abraham? They were going to kill him. And Jesus turns around and says in John 8, 58, John 8, 58, says, Before Abraham existed, I am. I am the eternal God. I always have been. I knew Abraham before he existed. He was in my mind. I created him. I put him on the earth. He rejoiced to see my day, basically, is what he said. So John testifies of the same thing. And John the Apostle picks back up in verse 16. We're going to move through these. It says, From his fullness, from, from the word's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Dial in with me for a second as we get to the close here. Jesus Christ gives an endless supply of grace for those who have believed upon him as Lord and Savior. For those who are in Christ from his fullness, which is God, right? From his fullness, there is an inexhaustible supply of grace. How many of you need an inexhaustible supply of grace? Two hands up here. It's as if anybody uh, been over the Marianas Trench, anybody flown to the Philippines? Somewhere right when you almost get to the Philippines kind of thing. There's this trench that goes down seven miles below the ocean floor. Seven miles, so walla walla to the airport. You know, like where we are here, basically the airport, maybe as a crow flies, maybe that's a little short. Seven miles underwater, the bottom, the deep. So you're looking up that the top of, like if you took that this way, that's that's how deep that would be. And I just imagine being at that deepest point of the ocean, being under the weight of all that water which would crush you. But you look up, and it's, it's so deep, it's dark almost. That's how inescapable God's grace is. That's the supply of grace you have in Christ Jesus. And by the way, you can just take that and push it out into the other ends of the universe and beyond. It doesn't stop in Christ Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Uh, and just to back that up so you know your pastor isn't just crazy, I love Ephesians. And you know I harp on Ephesians 1 because it talks about how totally, absolutely dead we are before God. Totally dead. And you got to make that case because the good news isn't good news without the bad news, right? So what does he say in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9? Verse 3, we're all children of wrath. We're all, we're all going to the chopping block. But verse 4, and here's the great part. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, with he loved you, by the way. Even when you and I, were, when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we usually stop there. Now, 
it tells us, now, when does that grace end? Aren't you guys concerned about the grace ending at some point? He saved us now so that verse 7 happens. So that in the coming ages, what is the coming ages? Revelation 21 and beyond. So in the coming ages, we don't even, as he, we don't know. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It does not stop. The grace in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not as a result of works. You see, there are two religions on earth. One that works your way and one that receives the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is people turn from their sin and believe upon Jesus. And he makes us born again. John says in verse 16, For from him, his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses was the one who brought the law to the people. The Ten Commandments. And if you, if you turn on any TV thing and you talk to anybody and you ask them, well, how, you know, what does God require? And you do this man on the street interview. Oh, well, I obey the Ten Commandments. Bummer. That's good for you in a morality sense. But that, the, the Ten Commandments do not save anyone. They do not save anyone. Now, here's the, the case that Paul makes. He says the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, Paul says in Romans, it's holy, it's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. It is awesome. It reflects the perfect moral character of God. Just like you guys have laws set up in your household that reflect your character, God has eternal laws, the Ten Commandments, that are, well, that reflect His, His, His character. But the law was powerless to save. It just shows you how far you, how um, far we fall short that we don't keep it paul says in romans 5 19 through 20 now that we know that whatever the law says it, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to god that's what the law does it stops us in our tracks and declares we're guilty for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin and that's what the law does i say do not murder and you go, well, great, I'm not a murderer. And Jesus comes along and says, well, have you done it in your heart? And you go, ugh, I have. And all the other commandments that we break. And so we're guilty. The law is a mirror that reveals we're totally full short of God's grace. I mean, full short of his, his righteous standard. It reveals we're sinners. Now, really, through Moses came the law. That's and, and the Jews were all looking at Moses as the, as the greatest deal on earth. Through Moses came the law. And by the way, he was a servant of God, and he, and he is awesome. But that law was powerless to save. Now, real quickly, John says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's grace, his mercy, his total forgiveness, his complete love, his total willingness and desire to pardon us eternally, is found in Christ alone. It's all found in Him. We all try to find hit, we all try to find ways outside of Jesus Christ. It's not there. It is through one person and one person alone. It is through Christ. We we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's exclusive. 
It's not the Jesus of the Mormons. It's not the Jesus of the, of, of the Muslims. It's not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not the Jesus of all these other things that try to make Jesus into what he wants. It's the Jesus we, that, that John proclaimed here. The eternal God in the flesh, whom to everyone will either bow now or bow then. If you bow your knee now and receive the forgiveness, he will give you his life. He will pardon you. And not only will he pardon you, you enter in through Jesus to the, the immeasurable grace of God. And all that is in there, it is inescapable. You're born again into his kingdom. You become a son and a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your darkness is dispelled and his light is imparted. You have his life. You know, obviously words fall short here, but by believing in the truth of who Jesus is, the eternal Son of God, the creator of the world, coming into the creation as a form of man, fully perfect, he, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law as none of us have. And then he willingly died in our place as no one could. And then God raised him to show that he was justified, that he was all right that all who repent and believe in him will be saved. Jesus' name, Jesus' name, guys, it means Jehovah saves. It means God saves. That's the truth of Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John in verse 18 finally says, no one has ever seen God. And you're going, wait a second, no one has ever seen God. The only God, what does it say? Or the begotten, who is the Father at the Father's side, or who is in the heart of the Father, or who is at the bosom of the Father. Jesus has made him known. No one has seen God. God is spirit. So no one has seen God the Father to technically qualify. You want to know what God the Father, the eternal creator, looks like? You look at the Son. He is the perfect. He is God in the flesh. He is God. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. Can I easily explain it to you? No. It's beyond my pay grade, dimension. It's beyond. He is with God. And yet he was God. And he became flesh. And real quickly, that word for that he, he was with God, basically he was in the heart of God, the bosom of the God, God it means he was tucked tightly into the, into the fold of his heart. So deeply knitted in the Father's heart, it's like inseparable. God gave his heart to the world. He gave his son, he... He unveiled his love to the world through Jesus Christ. The word came to give us eternal life and unending grace by believing in him. You know, there just comes a place when you can hear this stuff over and over. And I just remember when I was young, I, I knew it, but I didn't, I didn't believe it and I didn't follow it. And I just went after what I wanted to go after. And God, in his grace, allowed me to become so darn miserable that I would actually look up and see him. And he was there the whole time. But it wasn't on my terms, it was on his terms. It wasn't who I wanted him to be. It was who he was. And I remember saying, hey, God, you know, help. And he was right there to help as I was dealing with massive depression and voices in my head and all this kind of stuff. But he just gave me this in my heart. He said, follow me. That's all he told me. Follow me. That's what he told John. That's what he told Peter. You follow me. 
And that's what he gives us. He comes into the world. He shines his light. And there are people that Jesus walked up to. And he said, follow me. And they made all types of excuses why they would never give up the things that they had to not follow after the light. And that's why Jesus says, you know, the way is, it's, it's really, it's really narrow, but the, the way that everybody goes down is wide and broad. The darkness is already there. It's wide and broad. So Jesus didn't come just so you just have more knowledge of him this morning and you know all these technical terms. It's so that his life would be imparted to you, that you would know his joy in the midst of great suffering. Joy doesn't come by holding on to your own life. It comes by giving it up and following. And so as the Lord of life is here this morning, by, through his word and by his spirit, and he's speaking to your hearts, as we sang that first song, what can I say, what can I do, but to offer this heart completely to you? So may the Lord speak to you through this stuff this, today. May, um, may something of the person of Christ just cause you to have a deeper worship, a deeper love and, and, and just connection with the Lord if you know the Lord. If not, He's here for you. He extends His forgiveness to you this morning. Cry out, repent, believe, and receive His life. That's not something I can do. That's something He can do alone. He is the author of life. So let's pray, and then we will... Um, We'll feast, huh? <laughs> Lord God, you are so good and so kind. I just want to thank you so much for this group of believers that you would encourage their hearts this morning in you. That as we contemplate who you are, Lord Jesus, and, and the richness of as we wake up like from a dream and start to begin to see the edges of reality of who you are and what you've done in our lives, Lord, I pray that it would, that our response would be just glorious praise and worship to you. And that would result in how we live and how we act and what we do and what we sacrifice for and what we buy and don't buy and all that stuff would just translate into life. Teach us, Lord. Continue to walk with us. Have mercy upon us. Thank you for this beautiful day, Lord. Bless our food our fellowship, our families, God, as you already have. And we just love you. We give you today. In the name of Jesus, amen.